0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Holy City of Jerusalem at Asha Torah. And um, Today's class is uh, dedicated to Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong, who said, Responsibility is a heavy responsibility, man. We were just talking about... Uh, we, we've been having a discussion, so you're coming in midway if you're watching this. We've been having a discussion about responsibility and, and about, and sorry about the side noise, they're uh, rearranging a room there, sliding chairs and stuff. There, we were discussing how people on the West Coast and all over the world, but there, but there can be on the West Coast specifically in Los Angeles, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, all the bees. Beverly Hills, Bel Brentwood—you know that there, there—that there can be a narcissism. Narcissism means that you're, you're like everything, the whole world revolves around you. You're like the son of creation, and you got someone to walk your dogs, and you got someone to walk your kids, and you got someone to walk your fish, and 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 it's just like, don't bother me. Like, do not take my time. Do not take my energy. And I'm on my way to Pilates. Now, I'm not making fun of them. We were just having a discussion about West Coast, but this exists all over the place. I mean, this is not unique to there. It's just that we uh, you're coming in midway on the discussion about uh, life there, with, which came with a few stories. So why? Why is it like that? And where did it come from? Why is it so located there in the West Coast? I'd like to hypothesize, I don't know this for a fact, but I'd like to hypothesize that it has to do with the Marlboro man. It has to do with the Marlboro man. Have you ever seen anyone else in a in a billboard? You ever seen those Marlboro billboards? Cowboy. Yeah, is there any is there anyone else in there besides the cowboy? Is there anyone else there? Is there a wife? Are there kids? Are there his employees? Are there his friends? Are there The whole marketing of Marlboro, from the beginning of the company's work, was was go west. You know, we're leaving, we're leaving community. We're leaving civilization, we're leaving family. I'm getting on my horse, and I am riding into the sunset like a Western hero. It's a go west type of thing. And so we began this class in the west which is California. And for people from the, you know, North America, going west is a California thing. It happens to be filled with all kinds of beauty, not just natural beauty, but human beauty. Because when you think you're the center of the universe, so you can wind up developing into something quite creative, Quite amazing, and in fact, uh, probably one of the biggest industries that, that the West Coast ever put out was entertainment. And entertainment's obviously historically, you know, in all cultures, but no one's pumped it out, like Hollywood. I mean, they have, they have literally broadcast it into this whole globe. I've been surfing in exotic locations where there, it's palm tree jungles, with no roads anywhere. Yet I would find aboriginal children sitting at the base of a tree with the parents and the elders watching a flat screen. And and I'm like, how did they get this? And I look at the top of the palm tree and there's a satellite dish up there. And I see them in the morning. I go out and surf for three hours. I come back. They're still there. I take a little siesta, a nap. I go, go out to surf again. They're all, it's like a it's like a constant congregation around the uh, altar. You know, it's, the, it's become the altar. And, you know, the fire is always burning. In the temple, we had a, the fire, the altar it never went out. It never goes out. And the, uh, if you look at many homes... I don't know so much now that everyone has internet, but in the old days, it was on and it was on and it was just on. You know, you you'd be sitting in dinner and it was on, you know, somewhere in the background. Like there are many people that just to feel comfortable have to come in and turn it on, and then they go about their things, but it's on. Like the fire always burns. There was a great uh, Steven Spielberg. Sorry, there was a great Stephen King uh, book. It was called "Running Man." It became a, a movie, but and I don't know I didn't see the movie, I only read the books, but in, the, in this book, uh, what happened was government control worked through television. Oh gee, I wonder if that's still going on. Government control worked through television, and it's been very interesting. this whole fake news movement since uh, you know, the last year and a half has been interesting because people, I think, are a little, you know, like, upset that, that media is pretending not to be biased. And, and of course, this is old news for us. So I'm not going to go there, but, but the, but in this book, television had to be on always. And with television on, meaning for who's the running man? He was the guy who shut off his television, which set off an alarm, which told the police in such and such an address, the TV is off. You know, which they just, it might've been a technical issue. So they just went to turn it on and you know like make sure nothing's wrong over there but of course this television was turned off and he starts to run and the whole book is him running and it's it's quite an exciting and kind of <laughs> thrilling book cuz you know it's got this whole play of the control of the media and the anyway but it's always on it's always on and and the truth is now it's on our now it's on our hips in front of our faces, and and yeah, it is an attachment, and they'll probably figure out a way to have it play inside our heads, and it shouldn't be that far off because the third eye has has uh, you know it has uh, visual cones in it. The third eye, when they call the third eye, it's not just a bunch of you know crazy idolatrous. Indians dreaming up that we have a third eye. There actually is a gland in your brain called the pineal gland, pineal, pineal, the face of God, pineal, the face of God gland, which has, has uh, it does have visual cones in there, which is a little weird that you have visual cones in the center of your brain, but it makes more sense when you think about dreaming. When you dream, you're in full technicolor 3D experience. And that's when your pineal gland is quite active, is when you're asleep and seeing the stuff you see. The tefillin, by no coincidence, has to go in the center of the head, that's where it is. It's right between the two lobes, pineal gland, and this is where the hole in the skull is. Our skulls have a little hole right here. And the tefillin has to be, we have a law that the tefillin has to be over the hairline, otherwise the tefillin doesn't work at all. It has to be above the hairline to make sure that it's over, the, over that part of the brain. Uh, at least the center and the hole in the skull, where where the tefillin can permeate, our atheist. Our atheist frontal cortex, uh, which is where all the neurons do their firing, and because uh, your neurons are atheists, they're they're not big believers in God. Their job is literally to just. Receive stimulation from sensory experience. Well, sensory experience is finite, so your neurons are an atheists, and therefore a Jew starts his day. Women don't need this, which is a great compliment to you, but to men, it's not a compliment that we actually have to put it on our heads, and um, and it's got two shins on it, which you know shins have are pointed at the bottom, so it's kind of like driving in, and the shin is fire; it's expand, but it starts at one point. The shin. And it's driving in, and it's and it's cosmic too, because it's a three arm shin and a four arm shin. Which is also a little weird, whoever heard of a four arm shin. But if you think about a four arm shin, if you look at the negative step base of a four arm shin, do you see the three arm shin? Do you see the negative space between my fingers? A four arm shin is really a three arm shin, in, in the negative space, it's a. Do you see the shin there? So the. So a forearm shin really is also a three arm shin, it's through and through and we have to put this over our heads right over our neurons and then say Shema Yisrael and realize that everything is one do our best, we have to do our best to impress upon our neurons that this reality we're living in is just an outer membrane, a thin crust of reality. We had a complaint earlier in Aisha Torah by a group in Toronto. One of the boys was frustrated, I guess he'd been involved in other religions. He said, I I only overheard him, I was about to teach a class, and I overheard him, he was swearing and angry, and he was like, when are they going to talk about the next world? I want to hear about the next world, everywhere I go they talk next world, and we've been here for two weeks and then we never get to hear one class about the next world. And I overheard him, so I said, "Are are you upset we don't discuss the next world? He says, yeah. I said, do you want to know why we don't discuss the next world? And he's like, yes. And I said, because you're in the next world. He's like, what? I said, yeah, you're, you're, this world you're in. I know, I know a hundred percent of your consciousness thinks this is reality. But think about it. That a hundred percent consciousness you have of being in this room right now is 100% consciousness of you being in the room, but how do you know that 100% consciousness isn't 0.01% of your total spiritual reality, meaning your soul, is made up of, of a much larger thing, and then that larger thing, which we have the names for, is is called the Yechida, that's on the highest level, and then there's Chaya, and then there's Neshama, and then there's Ruach, and then there's Nefesh, and then the nefesh comes down level after level after level. All of those are multi leveled and they level, 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 until you finally get to like your fingernail. And the little white moon on the end of your fingernail, you know, the little white part, is what's USB cable interfaced to your neurons who report to it. They report to it. Your neurons report to that little part of you, which is 0.01% of you, or not even that, really. And yet, that 0.1% of you is how you're in this room right now, conscious of this class. So therefore, you think it's... You, you, you like, you know, fill it up, like, with, a, you know, like, the things that blow... the blowers. You blow that up into your 100% of consciousness and think, this is the world. The reason Judaism, you'll never hear a class about the next world is because... and it's not that we don't have a extremely an intricate reality we'll be dealing with someday. It's so intricate that, that you can't get a glimpse of it in this world because if you got a glimpse of it in this world you'd wind up tonight brushing your teeth on your forehead. You would be completely useless for the rest of your life. You'd have no ability to to live in this world having even glimpsed it. I mean if you could just get like, come on God just give me I just want a split second of experience of it you'd never be able to come back to you. You'd never be able to come back here. And we'd wind up locking you up where all the other sane people are. We're the insane ones. We're the ones who think this world's reality. And in fact, there's a whole other incredible realm that's causing this into existence. This is all just the outer edge. You ever seen a kid's toy? where it's got a little flashlight and this plastic, little fiber optic, little thin hairs come off. And then on the outside, it could be like, you see the color, like a red orb, or a green orb at the top of all the ends of the little... So we are that, we're that end orb. We're the end orb, and we're here, and it's incredible. I mean, just the, the ability to just take a string, or strings, and start making them vibrate to the point where music's coming out and your heart, heart's leaping out of your chest with, with awe and emotion just from the music. And that's, bef- that's primitive compared to some of the technology that we're dealing with today. And so so the, this outer membrane, this outer edge is, is remarkable, but it, it is nothing compared to what's inside with the, the incredible intricacies that, again, if you were to see it, you would not do so hot after that, and God spares you that. And if you think a prophet sees it, he also doesn't. God spares the prophet his life by by not showing him everything. And uh, and there there are there are realms that there are portals, there are doorways into the beginnings of it. You can actually access the beginnings of it through meditation. Also through plant medicines, there's various plant medicines in the that grow on our earth that give a, a direct ex- experience of it. Whether it be the the mushrooms of uh, the whole planet grows seems to grow these mushrooms that have this uh, you know impact and that you can glimpse something. Uh, and the you know the African jungles have their things and the bark that of the iboga tree and the and the ayahuasca of the Amazon, and, and the, uh, the peyote and cactus of the peyote of the North American Indians, and the, the cactus of the South American indigenous people. and the, the, there, are, there are glimpses, but, but you're changed forever after you have that experience. And, and you didn't even get to see, like, meaning, meaning if the divine is the ocean, you got you you got to put your toes in. Like you ate the mushroom and you got to put your toes in the water. And as soon as your toes went in there, you just went for six hours. And you come back and your whole personality has changed. Your whole personality has changed. You're suddenly open to things you used to be judgmental about. And you're 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 energized and passionate about your life and about Purpose, and you suddenly have mission in your feel, in your, mission in your heart, and so the so that's very powerful. Getting your toes in there, and by the way, you better be careful if you're going to mess with that stuff. And the Jewish tradition, our tradition, is not to mess with that stuff. Our tradition is something much more difficult, and that is to, that is to, uh, be involved in <laughs> intensive. Torah study, a very limited amount of opening your mental real estate up to foreign ideas. So you're like you're you're both blocking stuff, yet inserting stuff. Like you're inserting Torah while push like protecting, filtering out Westernism. For example, is you'd want to be filtering out a lot of Western values from your your inner sanctuary. And it's also going to require dietary, you know, laws. You're going to have to be very strict with dietary laws, and sexually chaste. You know, really um, on the highest level of, of being careful sexually, and also um, a constant, constant reflection of humility, like working and working, and working on humility and catching your heart, desiring for fame and fortune and. And recognition, you're going to have to work very hard on that and, uh, and then of course, uh, to be to be very patient and devoted in prayer. And with all of that, if you get all the all that stuff plus a couple other things that, that we're not going to go into, but with all of that meaning we're not going to go into it because' I'm not, going to, I'm not here to explain everything about Judaism, but if you do all that, I mean, there's a couple other things like, for example, being attached to someone who's already there. That's also pretty important to have. You have to have a Rebbe who's already there. Oh, the only reason you need him, by the way, in case you're wondering if it's some magical thing. It's not necessarily so magical. It's just that he's walked these paths and knows how to guide the paths. So it gets to a point where the paths get not so clear. And so you got to start getting some guidance at that point. But along this path, you eventually, when you're old and gray, have your first just kidding, not when you're old and gray, but if you really work hard at this, even as a young man, you can touch the divine. Isn't it easy just to just take a mushroom? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> that whole pause was the waiting for someone to say that, <laughs> and you did it. Is nice Okay. The <laughs> is there any kind of this sort of like Kishore, the with these kind of things? And they're, they're, there's not. But uh, the question was: Is there any issue of uh, of like magic, witchcraft, uh, idolatry, um, you know, dark side stuff? Um, <laughs> no, there's not. But they, but you do have to be a little careful, if not very careful. Of the of the guided experiences, meaning if you if you did it in total purity as a Jew, you know you'll be you know you definitely got to be careful where you go with it. But but having a guide who is of witchcraft style, you know, with a big bone through his nose and and uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, just looking at him, you're like. This guy's. This guy knows the dark side a little too well, <laughs> you know. So, and now you're going to take something that's putting you in an unconscious, you know, deep into the subconscious realm where your faculties are no longer available. Your daily, regular, awakened consciousness is no longer available. <laughs> Does that sound like something you want to be doing? Uh, not a good idea. Not a good idea. And so. Uh, it's got its dangers but uh not inherent in it it in itself doesn't have its dangers, but uh but it's got other dangers and that is that uh that that uh someone has to be very careful because it's powerful and anything powerful cars you have to be extremely careful with uh fire you have to be extremely careful with and and so, so it requires great care and it um and maturity and, and, uh, and guidance, not, meaning not necessarily the guy with a big bone in his nose, but, uh, but someone involved in this would need to know the um, qu- cleanly quality of what you're getting. That you're, if you're putting something in your body, you've got to be careful. And also how much is appropriate. And it could be body weight is of issue in the dosage. And There's a lot of detail involved there, and you know, someone has to take extreme caution. On that. And then also, many people today are medicated on things that would definitely not mix well with such an experience. And so, whatever, there, there's what to be of great caution for this. You're, you're playing with fire here. And, and, it's, uh, and it does have its dangers. Um, <laughs> I heard one great quote that, uh, that you could actually d- die. It, it'd be it's <laughs> death by astonishment death by astonishment that you're so astonished by what's actually going on all around you um, when you see it. But again, we're only talking about the toes getting wet. This is not, this is not, the, you know, what's really going on on the other side. This is just sticking your toes in the ocean. Um, so, but the answer, the question of why not is, um, is that the next day even though you've had some shifts, which are fabulous, but the next day, you're as a Jew, you're right back to what I was saying. I Meaning, in the end, you've got to be honest and organic and aligned with tribe. You're part of a tribe. And if you're part of a tribe, in the end, you walk the path of your tribe. And I've met many Jews who spent many years in ashrams in India, Uh, I think the foremost was second to the guru. He was second to the guru. Uh, He had been there for 12 years. On his 11th year, he decided, because something always bothered him throughout his years of of sacrifice there, um, meditation and abstinence and, you know, every kind of... uh, spiritual practice that they were involved with. But there was one thing always bothered him. He wanted to come to Israel and ask about it. And that was, why did God give him reproductive organs if not to use them? It just bothered him. Every meditation. Why? It it just didn't make sense to him. Like, everything made sense, except what's that doing there? And if you'd say it's really because it's there to not be used, it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. You know, imagine you find a... You come into our lobby here and you see a big handle like an airplane door handle. Well, if everybody was like that, there would be no generation after that. Right. Right. And and it's not very good for a society because the people who gravitate towards an ashram, towards that level of life, are usually of certain personality, and you can wipe out that certain kind of personality from your population. Yeah, which is kind of interesting when it comes to... To Christianity, because uh, to be a priest, you know, which meant celibacy, um, it required great study in a very, in very illiterate centuries. I mean, these people were, these were illiterate times. Most of Europeans, Europe's history, were people Ill, were illiterate. So, to be the guy who's going to go study all the scriptures, had to be a smart guy, and so you're automatically breeding out brains. Judaism is like really the exact opposite. Meaning, if someone's a great Torah scholar throughout our history, so he obviously is going to become a a leader. But a leader is not going to be self-supported. So what would often happen is the wealthiest family of a community would, would marry their daughters off to these scholars. Because that father of the wealthy people, that wealthy father, would would have the brunt of the responsibility that Torah continue. And so because he has that surplus of wealth, so it would make sense that he would be the one to continue the Torah via his son-in-laws and marry off his daughters to these unique people, which there was like one per region, you know, in, in, in every hundred years there was like one per region. But if that kid was that one incredible genius. So he would almost likely go to a very, you know, I don't, I don't like talking Darwin much, but it would, it would be a very survival of the fittest family because it is the family with the surplus. If the wars are coming and people are getting exiled, they're more likely going to get out first with all their stuff. And, and they're just going to know the right people to survive this. And so in Judaism, in a way you'd say breeds for brains, it, to this day, what's interesting, to this day, at least in the Yeshivisha community, it's, li- it's quite likely that to marry your daughter off to a major Torah scholar, like when I say major, I mean, he's a, a, a Torah scholar. I shouldn't say major, but he's, he's, he's got a good track record. His resume shows many hours a day involved in Torah study that very often the bride's family has to pay for the whole thing to get him but once again we're breeding for brains because you know what it is to know Jewish law you know what that is I feel bad I I really someone remind me to email uh, Justin remember Justin at my Shabbos table Yeah. we had this kid who was a lawyer at our table secular guy you know he didn't you know he didn't know whether to say Al Nitzila Sudaim or Lahadlik Ner Shel Hanukkah uh, when we washed it was very cute and uh, he started Lahadlik Ner Shel Hanukkah for the Nitzila Sudaim I found him on my way home. I was coming from the hotel Friday night, and there he was, you know, beautiful guy and amazing. Him and his father on their, this, like, great trip together. And anyway, um, so he told us that he's a lawyer. You know, he does compensation law, which is a very, very, like, of law. That's, you know, and most lawyers are doing a pretty narrow part of the spectrum. That's just part of law. You choose what you're doing. You know, there's entertainment law. There's contract law. There's... There's uh, harassment law. There's, there's workers' compensation law. There's, these are all different law things. Anyway, but he's got this little field. So I said, well, you're at a table of lawyers here. Because the table was tables full of uh, yeshiva bachars, and including my sons. And, and so I asked him, I shouldn't have done this, but I asked him, so in the height of your law school days, like, what was the most law you studied per day? And he says, I probably got to three to four hours a day and then we, we asked my eight year old, who's uh, he's in uh, he's learning pure Torah like it's the law. He's learning the law. He's learning the law. Um, it's, a little, it's almost uh, I don't know how to do the math, but it's from uh, he starts at eight thirty and he finishes. You guys will help me. He finishes at five thirty. How many hours is that? What is that? No. Nine hours. Yeah, he's eight years old and he's at nine hours a day. This guy was getting his doctorate in law. And at max, he was at three to four hours a day. Yeah, but yeah they let them play a little bit here and there. Not a lot of breaks. <laughs> By eight years old, there's not a ton of breaks. And interestingly, just to tell you something funny, because how do you get kids to do that? Because it's his whole class. That's not possible. What about ADHD? Isn't ADHD real? Isn't it true? Or is it? it's something made up. What is ADHD? So I have two things to tell you about ADHD. One thing about ADHD is that it is, it is something we call people who are meant to build buildings but have to first be in school for many years. Meaning we created a school system that even someone who really would rather be doing other things, he's very, tactile, very instinctual, like very body guy that throughout all of world history would have been fabulously successful, is now called sick. He's now got a syndrome. And then we're going to drug him to get him to be able to sit through our system that we've created for him, for, the, for kids. It's meaning there's no such thing as ADHD. But what do you do? how do you get kids who are actually meant to be builders to sit at eight years old for 11 hours a day. So... Lots of candy. Lots of Yeah, they definitely do that. But but a real ADHD kid, you, know, you can offer him what you want. He's not going to be interested. So so how do they do it? How do they get a whole class? And it's not just there. I mean, there's schools that have, in Israel, where there's four parallel classes with 30 kids per class. Like, for example, Hasidim, uh, bells or something. There there will be four parallels with 30 kids per class. How many kids is that? 120. What? 120. Mm-hmm. 120. And they're all sitting and learning all those hours, those kids. How? How'd they do it? So I'll tell you a little story. When I sent my first son to school, he was three years old. And everyone's while I popped by the school. And I started noticing after a while. Meaning, I'd bring him a sandwich that he forgot, or I'd go say hi because I was walking by I notice every time I go, they're on the playground. And so I finally decided I'm going up to his rabbi and, you know, the teacher. And what's up? You know, like, how is it that I perfectly come here during recess every time? And he looks at me and he says, the kids are three years old. And what do you want from them? I came back when he was four years old and they were mostly on recess, but there was more class time. I came when he was five years old. There was also mostly recess. But a little more class time, and then mostly, a little more class time, and then until it finally shifted to the other side. It was mostly class time with a little recess, and then mostly class time, mostly class time, and then by the time they're eight years old, they're just in class. Not eight, but like by the time they're 10, 11, 12, that's when, right before bar mitzvah, then they're just like, then they, then they start nights as well. They, at 12 years old, they begin to study another two hours, meaning they start giving dinner, Instead of sending them home for dinner, they stay for dinner. And then they get another two hours after. So they go up to, uh, they head into the uh, eleven uh, more, more hours of study. But let's look how different, how different is the education system where they put those five-year-olds in kindergarten in America and they're expected to be in class. They're expected to somehow, you know, own up to classroom. And if they can't, we'll medicate them and give them a stigma that there's something wrong with them. When in fact, for the other thousands of years, where were those kids? Those kids were were amazing people. And what we're talking about ultimately is the tyranny of the education system, because think who winds up in control if you let the people who are good with their hands and industrious type people, energetic, physical type people, they're going to be the ones with the money in the end. Intellectuals aren't going to be the ones with the money. Well, somehow the intellectuals, when no one was looking, flipped it. And they made school systems. And in the school systems, we're going to make all the the people who would have wound up financially stable, we're going to put them, you know, they're going to be called Blue collar workers—is that what they're called? Blue collar, and you know, we'll 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 put them through our system, and and then, but we're going to fast track intellectuals. We're going to fast track the intellectuals, and and then the the whole wealth flipped. And by the way, this still exists in the. This original system where, where it was the tactile people were on top and the intellectuals were kind of the nerds who had nothing. And they, this is still flipped in the Haredi community in America, only in America. Why? Because someone who's a great scholar will live in basically poverty, but, you know, he'll have just what he needs. The community and the co and the, They'll more or less take care of him. Shalom. They'll more or less take care of them communally. Whereas the kids who are not fit for Torah study wind up very wealthy business people, and because of the years they spent learning, their quite their minds are quite developed, and they're very good at. They become very wealthy people, and there's mega wealth now in the black hat world in uh, in Brooklyn and New Jersey and. various other places and when you meet these very wealthy guys and I personally love these guys because I'm like them more I'm not so much the intellectual I love hanging out with these guys because they're not because not just because the food's good and the, and you know I like to sit in a Range Rover it, and, and it's not because of that I, I like hanging with them because they're my style guys and it's just great and they build mikvahs in their homes so I get a nice hot mikvah in the morning without having to get out of my pajamas and it's there's a massage guy because they're very, again, they're very tactile, so they got, they're the kind of people who like being you know pushed and prodded by massage therapists and it's a blast to hang out with them. I love these guys, and they love me because I make them feel smart for the first time after the system you know made them feel like there's something wrong with them and they, uh, but they really are brilliant because brilliance comes in many forms. I've seen African dance troops that were genius and uh, now I would not ask them to help me balance my, my accounting ledger but, uh, but there was absolute genius going on uh, on the dance floor with this you know aboriginal dance troupe from Africa they were brilliant there's lots of types of brilliance okay that rants over I feel bad that I even did it because we're really back in California and we're talking about the Marlboro Man And going west, and when you go west, you're leaving everyone and everything. And it's about you, because you're the only one in the world, because you're all that exists. And... Someone needing you is a responsibility that is... extra superfluous, a hassle. Like someone who needs you, you want that around you, you'll notice that you, you've carefully selected your friends for not needing you too much. They should need you some, not too much. And that's why you'll also notice this narcissism of the West, and this is also Western Hemisphere narcissism, is, I mean, they've, in Scandinavia, they've already done away with marriage. Because that's, again, that's, that's a dependent. That's called a dependent on a, on a... Do you have any dependents when you're filling out IRS form? They call it a dependent. You want someone dependent? You want an appendage like that? Dependent? And so responsibility is, is uh, seen by the Westerner as, as bad. It's as negative something I, I'd like to do away with. And when in fact, when in fact the, the, the embracing of responsibility and having people dependent upon you, not in an unhealthy way, I'm not talking about codependent, I'm talking about just in a healthy way, that that, great, that will make your life very rich. And I think all the women certainly know what I'm talking about, is, uh, is having people need you a lot is is has probably caused more richness in your life than maybe anything and maybe anything else as the famous line is more than the child wants to eat the mother wants to feed and so it's that's a dependent relationship and it's uh it makes life very rich for people men don't have that same kind of i mean we have it but not the same it's not, it's not the same exact thing where we we'd rather cut ties than forge them. And and it's uh, we're not as interested in that kind of dependency. Yeah but if they're narcissists they need everyone to run around for them. So they depend on all the people I think that you'll everything for them. hmm Yep, they they are I mean we're all really dependent we're all really dependent, it's just that they're not, they don't want to deal with it. Okay, that's where we're at right now. Anyone want to um, ask a question, interject, comment, anything of the sort at this point? Yesterday we were talking about um, meaning uh, of having a... um, Mission. Mission, right. (laughs) We spoke about having a mission yesterday. How does it fit in the film world, especially for women? Because I, I said something about that at the end of the class. I missed it. Something about women? How does it fit in for women? Yeah. Having that mission. Having a mission. Because for most women, once they get married, their mission is, you know, is first thing is their own family. Right. They take care their children. Okay, so I, I, I'm happy to speak about that for a few yeah. minutes. Um, the question is... Uh, Yesterday, we did a really nice and a powerful treatise on uh, on mission. I thought yesterday it came out extremely powerful in the end and um, and if I may say so myself, but it wasn 't me it was we cr- kind of created it as a group yesterday. It was very powerful and um, but the question is women in mission and what I'm going to say might not sound so nice to the ears of a Western woman, and uh, especially in the last 60 years. Um, but I will say one nice thing that, and I've heard it said, that if you are born a woman, it's because you were already a man and been there, done that. You've been there and you've done that. And that's why you'll notice that that you... I mean, unless you've been highly impacted by, by the feminist movement, you, you're not very jealous of your husband's need to get out there and be recognized and feel significant in all that external world. You're not jealous of that, which is interesting because men are tremendously jealous of that. You know, imagine like one of your good buddies growing up it's not like really killing it out there, you know. You're happy for them. but party is eating your heart out, you know. And women just aren't doing that. Again, many have, many have been deeply impacted by the feminist world. Many women find themselves now in their forties, fifties, as victims of that world, and it's a little late to catch up with with things they they were were influenced to forego in their process of development um, that you know I believe those women should stand up like like since they were given that that ambitious style so they should be all over the internet viral, viral now and I've seen some already fighting fighting back meaning don't just don't just Don't just die barren. Don't just die a barren victim. But create children through getting angry and even. And that enough young girls will see that and likely make better decisions and have children. Those will be your kids. I mean, you create that voice and you give birth to many more kids than you would have ever had. And so I, I believe women should be very vocal if they find themselves on the other side of the child-rearing ages, having been there. Um, but the, the bottom line is, of your question, just to answer it in a line, is that, is that it's important when you marry someone that their mission is your mission. You have to share the mission. And it's very important that men, especially you young men, that you figure out your mission before you get married. Because what if you figure it out after you're married and your wife's like, what? That's not, that's not my mission. You got to have this, you have to, your missions have to match. So it's really important that men find that mission while they're young men before the ages of marriage. It's really important. That's not a, that's not an option to, to get married because you'll never find it later because it could mean the end of your marriage. So you wouldn't even, and it's not easy to find. You got to, it takes time to find your mission. And you won't even, you're not going to hassle with looking for it if it could mean your marriage and your family gets disrupted. And so, but for men, mission is natural. We have to have mission for meaning, whereas the woman's mission is built in. And that is to create. And that's your mission. Men have to create too, but we don't have it built in. So we have to create out there. And that's thats what our job as as men. And it's a scary job, and it's, but it is a a dragon we have to face and we have to go slay that dragon and the way you slay a dragon because it's scary right the way you slay a dragon is you got to have something behind you that's at risk and what's behind you at risk what you got to risk if you don't slay the dragon is that meaning what's chasing you from behind while you're running towards a scary dragon is that what would life be like if you don't What's your life going to be like if you don't? You have to get real with what life looks like if you don't take responsibility. If you don't go for it, what's life like? What's your life going to be like? And that's scary enough to go deal with the dragon. And you should know when you finally get to the dragon, it's not so big. Dragons get big later when you wait. Shalom, everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.